All right, uh, if you'll take your Bibles, please, we'll turn to Colossians chapter 2 this morning. Colossians chapter 2. In the heart of this letter, which was a circular letter from, from the Apostle Paul to not just the Colossian church, uh, the church in Colossae, but also uh, the church at Laodicea and others around Asia Minor as well. As was uh, the custom in those days, letters often were circular in nature. They were intended to be shared. So they would go to one church Basically, it would be addressed to a church, and then they would pass it along, and it would be carried along down the line. So you'll get a hint of that in this chapter as I read from Colossians chapter 2. Beginning at verse 1, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order, and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are shadow These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. 
God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Please be seated. Does your religion ever leave you feeling empty? Like it doesn't meet the needs of your heart? If you feel that way, what do you do or what do you think when that happens? I think for a lot of people, there are a couple of options that are kind of the go-to that they do. First, they change religions, right? They look around, try to find something else, uh, either a new, a whole new church tradition of some kind, a whole new religion of some kind, or perhaps if they stay within the same religious tradition, maybe they get tired of this teacher or that particular individual congregation, and they go to try and find contentment, satisfaction um, under some other guy somewhere. That's the, that's the first option a lot of people make uh, or, or take. Secondly, uh, many mistake the visible church for the invisible church. Um, that is the what you can see, the local part of the church, its company, the congregations, the buildings, all that sort of thing. And the invisible church are those that are the Lord's known to him. Uh, it's a soul matter uh, that uh, takes place whether or not it can be seen what connection that they have locally or visibly. Um, when you make that mistake, uh, it's easy to start piling on the trappings of, of ritual and ceremony and all those other kinds of things. It's very easy to get lost, or try to get lost anyway, in the warmth of a liturgy or maybe the excitement of a conflict. And you say, what? Yeah, you know, some people are not happy unless, you know, they're fighting and arguing about something and making a point about something. And church can be a great place for that, right? Because we're going to slap somebody over the head with the truth of Oh, well, at least as we perceive it, of the gospel. Uh, perhaps uh, uh, another way of expressing this is just finding comfort in the, kind of this ironclad language, the structure that men devise, all of the, the forms and, and everything that uh, it's easier to just go through than to think. But unfortunately, neither of these options have anything to do with true religion much less um, are they capable of being full and satisfying to us. There's a third option that I would submit to you this morning, uh, an option that involves living in submission to a living person, not a concept, not a system. Now, I'm not trying to say in any way that the local church, the visible church, doesn't have a place. Obviously, I think it's kind of important this is, one reason why we're here. Uh, not just kind of important, it's really important. It's ordained by our Lord. And yet, we should not raise the visible structure to the position of an idol in our lives, but actually have our eyes fixed upon our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And that kind of life, lived in the shadow and the light, both. Yeah. Within the sphere of influence and power of Christ's resurrection. That kind of life is truly full of blessing. Let's talk about this idea of full living then as we see it laid out for us in Colossians chapter 2. 
Right now, there's a lot of talk about economics and wealth and wondering how long it's going to last and all that sort of thing. Um, all kinds of discussions about different currencies and both actual and crypto and all those other kinds of things because people are concerned about their money, they're concerned about their wealth. And certainly we can look around this world and understand that uh, while wealth can be sustained for a time, it's fleeting, it's not permanent, and there are plenty of people wandering around the streets of major urban centers in our nation and many other nations around the world that had plenty of money at one time, lost it all through one means or another, and now are destitute. So we need a better kind of wealth. And the Apostle Paul talks about that here in this opening verses. Now, those of you that have been here for a while, you know that uh, I like to see if I can find, um, if, if, if a text actually presents itself as such, to understand a, a, a literary structure called a chiasm within a text, and I believe this passage really fits that very, very nicely. The chiasm from the Greek letter key or X, meaning that the point of the whole passage is really smack dab in the middle, and the other portions parallel each other and work their way in toward the middle. So we're going to be looking at that beginning at this first section, verses 1 through 3 and verses 20 through 23, as we speak about full wealth, full wealth, which is ours as we come to know God. So in 1 and 2, he speaks about the struggle that he has for these believers there in Asia Minor, not only for those whom he's met, but those whom he hasn't met. And his heart's desire is that they would all be encouraged as they are knit together in love to reach all the riches, all the wealth of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So let's think about this in verses 1, 2, and 3 here for a moment, and then we'll take a look at how verses 20 through 23 round out the thought. First of all, the first aspect of treasure that I see here in verses 1 and 2 is the treasure of, of a united love that they have for one another in the Lord Jesus. You may remember, those of you who are familiar with the book of Revelation, when the Lord Jesus addresses the church at Ephesus, and he, his criticism about them is that he says, you've lost your first love. They were zealous for Christ. They were all over the idea of, of rooting out false teachers and all of that, and that was commendable. But they had forgotten to love one another. They'd forgotten to walk with compassion and tenderness and godly love for each other. And it was, they were causing harm to one another. So Paul here is saying, my heart wants to see you walking together in love, not arguing, not at, at odds with each other, but being, and, and not even just kind of walking along side by side, but knit together. So that no matter what happens, as we are in Christ and we're loving one another, when, when we sin, when we struggle, when all of our prickles come out and all of that, we don't blow apart because we actually, truly love one another in Christ. That's a treasure, is it not? Is not the entire world longing for peace and harmony? And they'll do almost anything to get it. That's how, that, it's priceless. 
And clearly it cannot be bought. It can only be ours as a gift through Christ. And it is a mystery. The riches of assurance, of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. This, he's already said this kind of thought back in chapter 1, just a few verses before this. When he speaks about the mystery that's hidden for ages and generations, but it's now been revealed to his saints. And in verse 27, to those saints God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles, or the nations, are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know, if, if our hope is truly in the Lord Jesus Christ, then when, he, when, when the rest of us screw up, yeah, then we can, we can endure that, and the relationships can endure. If all our hope is within our ability to stay on good terms with everybody, well, that's not going to work out so well because we're sinners and because we blow it, because we get angry, because we get selfish, because we sin against one another. But if our hope's in Christ, we still may do those things, but we may still have hope that the relationship that he puts together is going to endure. So a great treasure, united love in Christ. A second great treasure that uh, comes right out of these verses uh, in, in verse two here at the end, of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, that Paul concludes that thought in verse three when he says, in whom, that is in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So there's that treasures again. Wisdom and knowledge. Paul says to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians, he describes Christ as the power of God and the wisdom of God. You've all heard that saying, you know, knowledge is power. And whoever controls, uh, you know, well, we see it, right, in our nation. Depending on who controls the media and who controls the knowledge stream and what goes out, the fact stream, and I put fact in quotes when I speak about the media, but nonetheless, if they control those avenues of communication, uh, that's what people know. There's an incredible amount of power that is there. That's why the left loves to try to control the press, because they can, they can control the narrative that way. You know, when, they pay a lot of money to do that because they think that's a treasure. And actually, they're right. It is a great treasure. Is it not a greater treasure to know what is actually true, what is actually right, and to be empowered by that? Yeah. And when it comes to spiritual things, to actually know our Creator, to know what He delights of us, what He desires of us, to know that there is an avenue of access to him and to know the way to find that and the way to walk in it is a treasure beyond price. If you think about it through the history of mankind, what is every philosopher, every political leader, every... In fact, I would venture to say whether they have recognition or prominence or uh, a soapbox or not, every human being is pursuing this treasure and wants to know. And to the degree that they think they have the knowledge that they need to have 
to that degree, they are emboldened and empowered to, con to get up every day and to walk forward. That's why, you know, we, we hear about agnostics who, who want to say, well, we can't know anything. Um, what what a, a terribly, horribly hopeless uh, way to think it, uh, that is. I'm going to say this carefully. It's better to be an atheist than an agnostic. At least you have an opinion. As an agnostic, you've given up that there is anything of, of value at all in life because nothing can be known. Now, I would also venture to say that I don't know anybody who claims to be an agnostic that actually is one. Practically. Because in the very statement of there is no way you can know, they've just stated knowledge. Right? So, inconsistencies aside, it's a hopeless business to go around without any knowledge. What an incredible treasure it is. And that treasure is found in knowing God and knowing His Son, Jesus Christ, who has revealed Him, uh, revealed God to us. Truly, we do serve a person who knows and can be known. Third aspect of treasure is found in verses 20 through 23. So you'll drop down there to the end of the chapter. These are treasures, you know, I mean... Anybody ever watch Antiques Roadshow? <laughs> Love that show. All right. Uh, people come in and they're all excited because they've got this glass bauble that, that grandma handed down to them. And they're sure that it's worth a fortune. And it turns out, you know, it was a dime store thing that's worth about 20 cents. And then there's somebody else that's got something that uh, everybody else wanted to throw away, but they kept out a sentimental value. And somebody said, oh, you ought to go check it out. It's like, okay, fine. And they get it, you know, and it's worth $100,000 or more or something, you know. And they're all, and <laughs> the reaction's always the same. Oh, and you start seeing the dollar signs and the calculator starts going in their head and they're trying to figure out if they'd insure it, sell it, buy a new SUV or whatever else they're going to do. But all of those things, whether it's a priceless painting or what, or a, or a worthless piece of glass, all of those things have a shelf life, do they not? They're going to corrupt. They're going to corruption. They're going to crack, peel, fall, break, chip, fade. It's nice to have those kinds of things. I'm sure if you went around your house and you looked at the things that you have, you'd say, "Well, okay, that's worth a lot. That's worth that. That's worth that." Um, and you can start trying to decide how much of your nest egg can that provide and all that sort of thing. But basically, everything that we have in this life fades. It's really not of lasting value. But God's treasures are of lasting value. Take a look at this passage. So in verse 20 we read, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as though you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All referring to things that perish. Okay? These have an appearance of wisdom. You can go, you know, 
the treasures of knowledge that we can put together, all those philosophers, or even in our own, every one of us is a philosopher at some level that we try to perceive reality about us and make statements of truth about that reality as we perceive it and live our lives according to those perceptions and our judgments. But all of those judgments really are according to our wisdom if we do it apart from God and Christ. So therefore, there... Take it for what it's worth. Um, you know, a broken clock, as uh, my brother James said just yesterday, as we were working together on a broken car. A broken clock um, is right twice a day. You know, there, there are things that we can glean as we look out with our frail and limited understanding. We can go, oh, yep, that's true. And lo and behold, it actually is true. Our problem is, is we mix a whole lot of error in with it and therefore render the truth obscured at best, if not completely set aside. There are basic principles of the world, and I think that he's referring to here. And the immediate reference is to kind of the, the, the fundamental forces behind the evil of this world. Verse 15, he kind of seems to suggest that. Um, that's the immediate reference. There's a, I think there's a broader perspective here that Paul also perhaps has in mind, uh, which would include uh, just an impoverished religion that just reveals continued dependency upon the things that are seen in order to try to find some fulfillment. Paul's point is that you and I are not to have faith in philosophy, structure, visions, or spiritual powers, but rather in the person and the work of Christ alone. Because that's where the lasting value is. That's where the lasting treasure is. We're to set aside those things. Uh, when it says here that they have no real honor or value, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It simply means uh, they have no honor, they have no value but for the satisfaction of the flesh. There can be some satisfaction of the flesh in it. That's why there's an appeal, and that's why people go that way. But it doesn't last. There's no real satisfaction that is there. Only in Christ do we have treasures that are of genuine, godly value. So full wealth is ours in the knowledge of God. That's part of the fullness. But there's more to it than that. As we move in towards the center of this chapter, beginning at verse 4, it's 4 through 9, and then 16 through 19 is the companion section. Not just full wealth, but full confidence is ours in the faith that we have in Christ. Now, verses 4 through 7 um, make a presumption, and, a, and a, one of, uh, that is logical and right from Paul's perspective as he knows this congregation. He says in verse 4, I say this, uh, as he's talking about Christ being the mystery in whom everything is hidden, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, things that sound good. There's a lot of arguments that sound plausible out there in the world uh, that are excuses for turning against God or excuses for ignoring him, but nonetheless, uh, they have the appearance of plausibility, but uh, they fall short of genuine truth. Paul says, though I'm absent in the body, Yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Verse 6 is key here. Therefore, you're walking in order, you're doing these things. 
As you have received Jesus Christ as Lord, so walk in him. The first aspect of this confidence or this trust, Paul is saying here, I'm presuming that you are followers of Jesus Christ, that you have acknowledged that he died, rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living, that my salvation is totally dependent upon him, that I have no merit of my own. It's it's his merit that pays my debt. Paul is assuming that of them. So he says there in verse 6, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, you've received him. So he says, essentially, don't stop there because your confidence goes beyond just that moment when you say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Your confidence carries on through your life. That's why the confidence is full. It's not, okay, I believe Jesus. Boy, I sure hope I can get through the rest and get to glory somehow. No, it's, I believe Jesus. And I believe that I'm saved. And I believe that you will keep me. So walk in him, he says. Trust in his sanctifying grace. His grace that sets you apart and prepares you for glory just in the same way as you depend upon and trust in his saving grace. Again, to refer to the, the, the letter to the Corinthians, first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 15 and verse 1, Paul says to them, Brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand. So it's not just about receiving, it's also about standing. You don't work You don't earn merit to enter into a relationship with Christ, and you do not earn the merit to stay in there. Our relationship is totally dependent, start to finish, upon the merits, the perfect finished work and merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us then to verses 8 and 9. So, he says, don't let anybody take you captive with a lot of fancy talk. Don't let human tradition take over your mind. Don't go along with the elemental spirits of the world, just the, the, the foundational powers that move both in the spirit world and just in the minds and hearts of fallen people that are trying to, trying to get along without God in their lives. Because if you're without God, the scriptures tell us, you're without God and you're without hope in the world. There's a, a word here, um, it's, it's one word in the Greek. The phrase here is that see that no one takes you captive. In some, uh, some translations, the word there is, is translated cheat. The word to take as captive is a good one. Um, the idea of carrying something off as, as, a, as plunder in a, in a victory, right? So um, it, the figurative... Figuratively, we're talking about the victimizing of somebody or brainwashing of somebody with religious error or false teaching. That's the idea of taking control of somebody's mind. You ever heard of a, of a, of a term, spellbinders? Anybody heard that term? It's a, it's kinda, it came, came out of the, uh, the idea of those that, you know, the, the, the potion, the magic potion salesman, you know, that because they were so proficient in being able to wow somebody and to capture people's attention and kind of bind people 
by casting a spell over them verbally uh, to get them to buy something, right? Or get them to adopt a position or the other. Well, Paul's basically saying, don't pay attention to the spellbinders. Don't pay attention to those that would try to, to uh, baffle you with brilliance. Okay? But have no real truth behind what they say. See evidence of that in the media all the time. Every time um, many popular, uh, po uh, popular politicians open their mouths, uh, it's like people turn their brains off and just, well, whatever they said, it must be true. And uh, it, it isn't necessarily so. Now, in this particular case, we look at verses 8 and 9. Um, they all, human tradition and all of that. Yeah, you know what? There's a lot of things about human tradition that are great. But there are other things that ought, it comes a time to be set aside. Was there a time when, for example, among the Jews, that food regulations and Sabbath requirements and certain festivals and all that were, were to be strictly observed? Yes. Were those things fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes. Um, is it necessary that we do those things in order to be spiritually fulfilled? No. Like the church council at Jerusalem in Acts 15 made that very plain. No. Uh, it can it can really be great when you come and say, well, you ought to do this and you ought to do that and you ought to do the other thing. And boy, wouldn't it be awesome if we all observed this feast or that holiday or did something else? It's like, it might be interesting and it might be educational, but it's of no value in preventing the indulgence of the flesh. Paul says, find your fullness, your confidence in Christ, not in the traditions of men. When you look at uh, uh, verses 16 through 18, that makes that really clear, doesn't it? Don't let anyone pass judgment on you on questions of food or drink or relationship to festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. These are shadows of the things to come. The substance is Christ. And look at verse 19. Because this carries right into this. Where is our real confidence nourished and strengthened? It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the problem with those that want to disqualify through putting, piling on all this extra stuff? No, the, the problem is, is that, that uh, they're strangling the tree in an effort to try to nourish it, and they can't do it. It doesn't work. They're not holding fast to the head, verse 19, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. This full confidence is about trusting in his nourishment of us, his substantial nourishment. That nourished and knit together, you take that phrase together, it has the idea of making available whatever is necessary to help or supply the needs of somebody. Parents, when your kids say, I'm hungry, do you throw a cracker at them and go, oh, there you go, kid. There's a popular commercial right now of a, it's a cat food commercial of all things. Maybe some of you have seen it where this lady's sitting on a couch and uh, the, her cat comes up. Tom's going to like this, this uh, illustration. Cat comes up and is purring, standing on the back of the couch and rubbing on the lady's face. And 
she's just loving this cat. So on all of a sudden, off screen, this, her, you hear the daughter yell, Mom, I hurt myself. And she yells, there's a Band-Aid in the kitchen. And then the voice comes back, I'm bleeding. Take two. Is that, does that fit the idea of nourishing and, and knitting together all that's necessary to help someone? No. We find irony in that, and so therefore it's funny in a commercial. But if, in real life, would that actually be funny? No. It wouldn't. Uh, because our task is to actually provide those needs, whatever it takes. And that is what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why we have confidence in the nourishment that he gives. He doesn't just toss us a bone. He doesn't just toss us crumbs. He nourishes us and knits us together in a growth that's from God and that no one else can provide. That only comes when you hold fast to your union with the Lord who creates all things and who sustains all things. And I want you to think about this. Now we acknowledge that our God is here spiritually, present with us always. It's part of his character. And yet how does God manifest himself in such a way so as to provide for our needs uh, here in this life, temporally speaking? Where does that come from? Well, there's a couple of areas. One, he supplies us employment, right? So we have income and those other sorts of things. So we can go out and buy what we need and all that sort of thing. But there are many things, as you know, that we need in our heart and soul that money can't buy. And the world certainly can't provide very well when it comes to peace and harmony and true companionship. That's hard to find. Just look around. Where does the Lord primarily, through what means, I'll put it that way, does the Lord primarily nourish his people? Through his word, in the context of his church, which is his body. And we're going to talk about his body here in just a minute. And how we are knit together with him. So that's why, you know, as, as believers, if you say, well, I can be a believer, but I don't really need to be part of the church. It's like, well, all right, you can live on life support over there if you want to. But the Lord, expect the consequences of it because the Lord commands us to be in fellowship with one another. For the very reason that it is through the church that he offers the greatest support and comfort and nurturing in the presence of all of his people. So, yeah, our confidence is in our faith in Christ, in this nourishment that is ours through him spiritually, through, immediately through the Holy Spirit, and then in, uh, also through the means of his church. So let's come then to the heart of this passage. We've looked at wealth that is full, confidence that is full. What does that add up to? Well, here in this center section of verses 10 through 15, we see where Paul has been going here uh, all along. And he's talking about life. He's talking about genuine, full life. This is a day that we celebrate, particularly the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who defeated death by rising again from the dead, securing for himself and for us eternal life. And full life then is ours because Christ rose again. And we see Christ cast in a, several ways here. Verses 10 and 15 uh, talk to, uh, kind of reveal him as a conqueror or 
the uh, head of all rule and authority. Verse 10, you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And verse 15, he disarmed rulers and authorities and put them in open shame, to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Christ is a conqueror. Through, through his death and resurrection on the cross, uh, in spite of all that the authorities of that day and authorities ever since have tried to do, to, to put, put him aside, uh, again, we look at what's going on up in British Columbia and other parts of the world, but British Columbia, since our, our friends and loved ones live up there, uh, they've tried to shut down the church entirely um, in Alberta, where they just uh, not long ago released a pastor that they had arrested and held in prison because he refused to agree not to preach. Um, and that was the reason they threw him in prison. And it was, you can get out as soon as you promise not to preach. And he said no. And uh, now he's been released by God's grace without any conditions whatsoever. So I'm sure he's back to preaching, which he should be doing. Christ is the one who's the conqueror. He, he lifts up authorities. He puts down authorities. And he being the head of all of that, uh, we don't need to, yeah, politics and thinking about the atrocities and the oppressions that human governments inflict upon their uh, populations is um, something that many have a perverse delight in, in consuming their minds with and others just as a matter of evil necessity to consider it to try to be a good citizen and do what we can do. But whatever, wherever we are on that spectrum, we need to remember that Christ is the one who's the king. He's the one who's the conqueror. He's the one who lifts up authorities and puts them down. And so therefore, uh, as we walk through and deal with them, okay, walk through and deal with it. But remember who's truly king. When you do that, then you'll be able to live. Um, uh, you're, not going to find, you're not going to find full and satisfying life on Fox News, or Newsmax, or One World Now, or One America Now, or any other news network, no matter how conservative or anything else that they are. You're just not. If that's your whole focus, you're gonna just be twisted up in a knot all the time. And I would submit to you that that's not living. Full life is trusting that God is in control. He's the conqueror. And so therefore, because he's conquered all those things, he's the ground of our completeness, of our fullness. If you look over in Ephesians chapter 2, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 22 and 23, he, that is the Father, put all things under his, that is Christ, feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. How are we complete? How do we know full life? Because our God has conquered all the rest of life. And so we rest in him. Back in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 14, we read these verses. We read these thoughts. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, having put off, or by putting off, excuse me, uh, the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, 
verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Christ is a conqueror. We've seen that. Christ is also, uh, I'm using this term deliberately, he's the circumciser. We read here of the circumcision of Christ. I think we all know what circumcision is in the flesh. It was a sign of identity that spoke to the putting away of the corruptions of the flesh and, and being cleansed and set apart unto, unto God. And, and then in the New Testament, that, um, that image is carried over, as we see here in this passage, in the rite of baptism, meaning uh, serving the same purpose and meaning essentially the same thing, only bloodless, because blood has, only, has already been spilt once by Christ and is not to be spilled again. And secondly, um, it's a better covenant. It's a better sign because it's more universally applied. So with all of that uh, to be said, Christ is the one who sets us apart and who cleanses us. And that is the ground of our very justification. Verse 11 um, we were circumcised spiritually, a circumcision made without hands, putting off the body of the flesh. And verse 14, how, what, what is involved in that? It's about canceling debt. That's what justification is about. It's taking Christ's merit, Christ's payment, and putting it to our account, which is hopelessly in debt to God because of sin. And Christ pays it all. We don't make up any more of it. We can't add to it. His payment is done. He said it is finished. One sacrifice, once for all, the book of Hebrews tells us, there is no more sacrifice to be made for sin. We simply rest in him and his finished work, and we may know his justification. Paul says to, to the Roman church in Romans 15, Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, and he's, in that context, he's specifically talking about Abraham, who was the father of many nations. So Christ fulfills all those things. All the promises that were made to the fathers are wrapped up in Christ. And we carry on in that blessing and to know that inheritance promised to Abraham and settled from before the foundation of the world. We know that from Ephesians 1. Are all secured by Christ who sets us apart and pays our debt. And that brings us to the heart of this, the whole point that Paul has been coming to in this passage, in verses 12 and 13. He's the conqueror. He's the cleanser or the circumciser. He's the crucified. He's crucified and raised again. Truly, he, uh, by doing those things, is the ground of our rebirth and new life. Notice there's a couple of things. How, notice how Paul constructs this in verse, verses 12 and 13. Having been buried with him in baptism, and then verse 13, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh were buried with him. It's put away because of our need for cleansing. Uh, water symbolize, the waters of baptism symbolize that cleansing. And then verse 12, the second half, uh, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And then the last part of 13, 
the companion to that. God made alive you who were dead. God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. What's going on here? Notice, or remember, as I just said a moment ago, circumcision carried on by baptism. What are those signs of? They're signs of a covenant relationship with God. They're God's stamp of ownership upon us. They're his sign and seal of his promises applied to us. It speaks about covenant. It speaks about God's promises to us. Not so much about our statement to him, more about his statement to us, that he is faithful to us, that he will redeem us, and we have his stamp upon us. Covenant union in his death is the focus of the first parts of 12 and 13, and covenant relationship, union with him in his life. The second focus of the second parts of those verses. It is in Christ who has died, rose, and revived that we have our hope. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ demonstrates to us that we are to look to him alone for fulfillment. It, it demonstrates also to us that we will find that fulfillment in him. As Paul said to the Corinthians in, in chapter 15, if there's no resurrection, we're of all men to be most pitied. Because we're just spinning our wheels and accomplishing absolutely nothing. But because Christ actually paid the penalty and arose again in triumph, we have hope. The covenant that he has made with us by meeting the requirements of the law, by defeating all the powers of the world, by seeking us, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That, all of that, that covenant is guaranteed by his life. So we need look no further for fulfillment and for joy in his true religion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this precious passage that reminds us that our hope is solely in Christ, the one who is crucified and risen again. Thank you, Lord, for providing such a marvelous Savior and grant each of us repentance from our sins and faith to cling to you with all our might and find genuine fulfillment in this life and in the life to come. In Christ's name we pray these things.